Yes, God, we thank you that you are a great God and you are a good God, far above what we could have imagined. You do far more than we could have ever dreamed possible. Father, there are many things that we want, many things that we worry about, many things that our heart desires, but we want to direct our prayer this morning by the prayer that your son taught his followers. So we're going to use his words to direct our hearts and our desires after what they should be. So our Father in heaven, with your son, we pray, hallowed be your name. May your name be held in highest regard throughout the world, starting in us, starting from our lips, starting from the lips of your church and moving around the whole world. May your name be considered holy here and everywhere. May your kingdom come. Yes, your good rule in fully manifest form, your justice and your holiness coming in and recreating our twisted world to give us the peace and wholeness that you have promised. Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We so desire for the goodness that you have shown us to be part of our everyday life. Give us today our daily bread. Whether we have much or little, our eyes look to you for provision day after day after day because without it, we have nothing. We trust you to provide. Father, forgive us our sins. We are sinners. We are distant from you. We are your enemies. And without your grace, we have absolutely no hope. And yet through your Son, we can ask with boldness, forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Yes, we realize that your forgiveness of us makes us commit to be a forgiving people. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we don't want to be drawn away from you. You are the source of life and hope. So when our hearts draw us away from you, when we start to turn away, draw us back to you. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Whoever else claims to have rulerships or kingdoms or power, they are all laughable in the face of your great name. You are the one who rules. You are the one who has power. Your glory is far beyond what we can fathom. So this morning we look to you, and we look to you alone for our salvation and for our hope. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to make words, that your word come alive, even through an imperfect servant. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The mid-1800s was a time of quite a bit of change. The Industrial Revolution was bringing a lot of uh, young men in particular to the cities to find work. Unfortunately, the cities did not tend to be the most wholesome places. So if a, if a young man had got out of his job and was looking for some form of leisure, basically he had two options. He could go to the bar or he could go to the brothel. And this was, did not sit well with one young Christian man who came to the city. His name was George Williams. And he didn't like the idea of his whole generation being drawn away from God and toward the vices of gambling and alcohol and prostitution. So he did something about it. He decided to start an organization for uh, the spiritual betterment of young men in the city who had, who had moved to the city to work in the trade. So in, in 1844, he started up this organization. And it quickly gained traction as this was happening all over the world. This was in London that he started the first chapter, and it quickly in 10 years spread to the U.S., to Canada, all over Europe. 
So they decided to gather together to figure out what this organization was really designed to do. What was the purpose of this organization? This is what they came up with in the mid-1850s. It said, The young men's Christian associations seek to unite those young men who, regarding Jesus Christ as their God and Savior, according to the Holy Scriptures, desire to be his disciples in their faith and in their life and to associate their efforts to the extension of his kingdom amongst young men. So, it's a big statement, but basically it's just saying this organization wants to unite young men to expand God's kingdom. Over time, however, that clear vision at the outset started to suddenly shift. So proclaiming the gospel and in, on the streets and handing out gospel tracts slowly gave way towards sort of promoting good citizenship. And today, if you go to the YMCA website, you are very hard-pressed to find anything distinctively Christian at all. Maybe a little bit on the history page, but even that is pretty muted. Their website now is proclaiming the Y, so not even YMCA anymore, the Y is a cause-driven organization that is for youth development, for healthy living, and for social responsibility. That's because a strong community can only be achieved when we invest in our kids, our health, and our neighbors. So do you see the shift there? Uniting young men to expand God's kingdom and now building strong communities. It's referred to as mission shift or vision shift. An organization sets its purpose toward true north, and over time that purpose shifts into eventually, I don't know, the YMCA is maybe 90 degrees off of their original purpose. So they're not 180 degrees. They're not working exactly against the expansion of God's kingdom, but they're definitely going in a different direction than the original founders had intended. And this can happen in the church too. And we have clear orders from Jesus, our commission from Jesus, and he sends us on a direction. This is true northward. This is the direction I'm sending. But we can subtly shift, maybe not 90 degrees, but maybe 5 degrees, maybe 20 degrees, maybe 45 degrees off. And over time, that's quite a bit different from true north. You find yourself, if you head this direction instead of this direction, you're going to be quite a ways away. That's why it's so important for us as a church to stop and regain a sense of purpose and focus. What is God calling us to be and what is he calling us to do? Who are we as a church? So we're going to stop and regain focus on mission as a church. Now to do that, we're going to look at uh, two chapters of the book of Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation 2 and 3 in a seven-week series that it's entitled How to Build a Church that Lasts Forever. Now, you'll see that the picture here is obviously not a church that lasts forever. This is actually the ruins in Ephesus. I kind of decided to pick that sort of ironically. This is kind of what you don't want. I think it's probably a pagan temple anyway. It's not a church. So, So that's the wrong idea. This morning, we're starting a series on what does it mean for us as a church to hear clear marching orders from God and to push hard in the direction that he has set for us. So seven weeks in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3. And really this is a great section of scripture because it's Jesus assessing the early church and telling them what's good and what they need to correct if they are to be a faithful church of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you hear Revelation and you get really excited because you love the book of Revelation and you're going to be really disappointed that we're only doing two chapters. I'm sorry. Some of you hear the book Revelation and you've been burned because you know there are lots of different issues with, with things like that, a lot of different interpretations, and you're wondering why we're going to spend any time in Revelation. Bear with us. Some of you might not even know what the book of Revelation is, and that's okay. So let's just have a brief word as we begin here. Revelation, if you don't know what it is, Revelation is the last book in the Bible. So 66 books. This is the very last book in the Bible. 
It's beginning, the, the first chapter here, it begins as a letter to seven first century churches in the Roman province of Asia. Now, I hear Asia, I think India, I think China, but this is a much smaller region. This is a, a little part in the Mediterranean world here. You can kind of see Italy off to the, the left there and Greece in the middle. The circle there is a part of modern-day Turkey that was the Roman province of Asia. So this is written to those churches in the first century at a particular point in time. And the purpose that the book was written was to strengthen and encourage churches that were either currently going through difficult times or were about to face hardship. The book does that by putting forward two basic theological themes. The first theme is that God is in control as king. And the second theme is related, that God is bringing redemption and judgment through Jesus. So the book of Revelation really, as a whole, is about God's sovereignty, that he is in sovereign control, controlling all of history, and that part of that, the big part of that, is him redeeming and judging through his son, Jesus Christ. So that's the big theological picture of what Revelation is, and the purpose, again, is to strengthen and encourage the local church. So this whole uh, message of encouragement and challenge comes from a vision that God showed a man named John. John was exiled for his faith, and imprisoned on the island of Patmos, and he gets a vision from God. And the first thing he sees in chapter 1, we see is a vision of Jesus. You can look back, and I encourage you to do that this week, look back at chapter 1 and, and read the description of who Jesus is there. It's a vivid, glorious picture of Jesus. But the point he's basically making is that Jesus has authority over the churches. And from that point of authority, authority then, he gives a message to each of these seven churches uh, in Asia. And that's where we're going to pick up. So we're starting first in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. If you haven't already opened your Bibles, I hear some rustling, that's good. If you haven't done that already, I invite you to do that now. Revelation 2, uh, in the Pew Bibles, this is found on page 1216. So we're going to start with Jesus' instructions to the church in Ephesus. So Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. First we're going to see what Jesus says the church is doing right, and then where they're in danger. So two parts here, what they're doing right and where they're in danger. So first, let's look at what the church is doing right. Start off in verse 1. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, you and I probably don't talk much about stars being held in someone's hand or golden lampstands. Fortunately, the verse that's right before this in, in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 20, descri- explains what this is about. That The seven stars are described there, are explained there as the, the seven angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches themselves. So lampstands are churches, uh, stars are angels. So basically, it's making the same point. Jesus has authority over them. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. And he intimately knows them. He walks among the lampstands. He walks among the churches. He knows them. In other words, that his assessment is going to be accurate and authoritative. Here's what he says about this church. Verses 2 and 3. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. If I heard Jesus say that about me or about our church, I would be beaming. I would be so happy. Think about it. They are working hard. They are enduring. They're persevering, even though times are difficult for them. 
They are upholding the truth of the Bible, and they are exposing these destructive charlatans who claim to be authoritative Bible teachers, and they're, they're showing them for who they are. And all of this is done, verse 3, in allegiance to the name of Jesus. They're, they're working hard and not growing weary. So this is a really good church. What they are doing right, the assessment that Jesus gives them of what they are doing right, is a very, very important thing. They are upholding the truth of the gospel. They are upholding theological truth in the face of human deception. And if you live in Ephesus in the first century, that is a very important thing to do and a very difficult thing to do. The thing that Ephesus was known for in the ancient world was this huge temple to the goddess Artemis. It's actually one of the seven, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's just a massive thing. And so if you lived in the Mediterranean world, you hear Ephesus, you think of Artemis. You think about this giant temple. And not only did they have that temple, they had these other two other temples to the Roman imperial cult. So this was a really important thing for the city of Ephesus. And it wasn't just a religious thing. It was intricately tied to the city's economy. The temple was good business, and it was also a source of local pride. We find out just how important this was to Ephesus if you look back in the book of Acts and and listen to what happened when Paul tried to preach the gospel there. Look at Acts 19. The whole city is worried about its commerce. They're worried about what the gospel is going to do to their economy if, if this Artemis cult starts to go downhill. And so people stir up the whole city and they start shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two solid hours. The whole city in uproar about this. So you can imagine, with that kind of external pressure it'd be very easy to compromise and maybe not say so much bad about the Artemis cult. And there is a group that is called the Nicolaitans that appear to have done just that. We don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans. All of what we know is really in these two chapters of Revelation. But it looks like they were trying to compromise on culture. It was kind of a Jesus plus culture sort of thing. They were were willing to kind of compromise with some of the things that were going on in the city. Jesus in verse 6 says that rightly so, the Ephesian church wanted no part of that. In verse 6 he says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. No compromise. And yet that puts them in a very difficult position. Upholding the truth of the gospel in Ephesus means opposing one of the central loves of that city. This would be like someone coming to, to Ludington, a group coming to Ludington, kind of planting their flag and, saying, flag and saying, we're against the Badger, we're against the State Park, and we're against Lake Michigan and all the beaches on it. Well, you just can't do that in Ludington. You're saying these are the things that we really love that make us distinct as Ludington. They're economic drivers. They're, they're the kind of big attractions here. And you can't be in Ludington and say that you're against those things. And yet that's exactly what this Ephesian church is doing. They're taking one of the central loves of their city, something that's intricately connected to the economy and a source of local pride, and they're saying that is not right. They're upholding the truth of the gospel no matter what the external circumstances are. But the thing about Ephesus is not only did they have those external things, they also had internal pressures as well. The Apostle Paul spent time as a missionary in the city of Ephesus, and when he left, he actually warned the Ephesian church about kind of Uh, internal pressures coming up. So this is what he said to the elders there as he left. This is from Acts 20. He tells the leaders, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. 
So be on your guard. So Paul already anticipated this. The very thing that he said, there are going to be people who come among you. They're going to, as Jesus says, they're going to claim to be apostles, but are not. They're going to claim to be these authoritative teachers of the church. They're going to come and try to destroy your church from within. And the Ephesian church is doing exactly what Paul told them to do. They're being on their guard. They're upholding the truth of the gospel in the face of all those internal pressures as well as the external pressures. So this is a really good thing. The Ephesian church has understood the gospel and they're holding fast to it. They're upholding gospel truth no matter what the circumstances are. Now at every step of the way in this series, we're going to use the churches, Jesus' instructions to the churches as a mirror for ourselves. Yeah, it was written 2,000 years ago, but but that church 2,000 years ago was full of people just like us. People with sinful human nature, people with the same pitfalls that we face people who have heard the same gospel message and who are called to the same acts of obedience. As such, Jesus' message to these churches serves as a message to us. So we see that the Ephesian church, Jesus commends them for holding fast to the truth, even in the face of hardship. And it demands that we look at ourselves. Do we do that? Do we uphold the truth of the gospel through all things? This is actually a really good part of our heritage. The free church movement started with people who were reading their Bibles and trying to live by the word of God, despite all external pressures. That's why they immigrated to the U.S., to get some kind of freedom to do that. The rallying cry among the early Swedish immigrants here was, where stands it written? In other words, if someone stands up from the pulpit, they had better be teaching the Bible, or you're not going to believe it. They're upholding the truth of Scripture. We as a church stand on that same tradition. I've heard from people who have been here a long time. The one thing that Trinity never wanted to compromise was teaching and preaching the Bible. When I come and stand here, you don't want to hear my opinion or some other human opinion, some kind of human wisdom. What you want to hear is God's word proclaimed. And you hold me accountable to it. So like the Ephesian church, I think, I think we're good here. I think we recognize that theology is a tremendously important thing. And I think we're striving hard to hold fast to the truth of the Bible. But that's not enough. Jesus turns from that incredible commendation of this church to point out a very significant problem. Look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. For all of the incredible good that this church is doing, holding fast to the truth of the gospel in all circumstances, There is a glaring weakness. They have lost the love that they had at first. Now, before we talk about what this lost love is, we need to learn what's at stake here. So Jesus is going to first command what they are to do to be obedient to his name. Then he's going to give a warning for what happens if they don't obey. And then he's going to give a promised reward if they do heed his call and repent. So first, what is the charge that Jesus gives the church? Look at the first part of verse 5 with me. Jesus says, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So there there are three clear commands here. Consider how far you've fallen. In other words, remember your original love. Remember what it was like when you first heard the gospel message. Remember what it was and consider how far you've fallen from that. And then, secondly, repent. In other words, make a decisive change. You're going in a direction that is a false direction. You need to make a decisive change of course. Remember how far you've fallen. Repent of it. And then thirdly, do the things you used to do. 
Remember the love that you first had of the gospel and get back to that course. You're going off track. You need to get back on track. Jesus then attaches a warning to this. What happens if they don't do it? Picking up midway through verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now remember back in, in verse 120, chapter 1, verse 20, the lampstand is the church. And this is actually connecting back to some language from the Old Testament, the, the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 4 talks about a, a seven-lamped golden lampstand, the same kind of imagery here. And, and there it's interpreted as the sign of God's presence through his Holy Spirit. That's what the light is there. So that the idea here is that the lampstand of the church is the place where the light of God's presence shines, where God's Holy Spirit shines out into darkness, shines out into the world. And really, that's a, that's a pretty good image for the church, because the church is the place where God's light shines into the world. It's the same idea that Jesus uh, used in Matthew 5 when he says "You to his followers, you are the light of the world. He says people don't light a lamp and then hide it. People light a lamp and then put it where people can see, put it where it can give light to the world. And then he instructs them, let your light shine before others so that other people can see what you're doing and can glorify God as a result. The church is to be the community that shines God's light into the world. In other words, we bear testimony to Jesus. We are to witness to the redemption in Jesus Christ, the light shining into the darkness from John 1. The light shines into darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The church is the place where that message is proclaimed. It's the lampstand through which the light shines. So if the church fails to witness to Jesus in the world, well, then it's not serving as a lampstand anymore. That the Ephesians have forsaken the love they had at first is shown most significantly in their lack of witness to Jesus. Now, there are several different interpretations of what this former love was, this, this love that they had at first that they've now forsaken. Uh, you could say this is the, the love they had for Christ at first that they now have now forsaken. You could say this is the love that they had for other Christians that now they have kind of forsaken. But, but really, the, the important thing is that that love for Christ and that love for one another is to be a testimony to the world. The church is a lampstand through which the light shines. The problem with the church in Ephesus is for all their care to maintain the right doctrine, they've lost the heart of their mission, and they're in danger of ceasing to be a church altogether. If Jesus takes away the lampstand, that means that they're not a church anymore. They might be a little gathering of people, but they're not a church. They're not the lampstand that's on which God's light shines into the world any longer. And really, that's the natural result, right? If they're not bearing witness to Christ, if they're not shining God's light into the world, then well, then they're not serving as a church anyway. They're not functioning as a church. The church is called to be that lampstand. And when the, when the church stops spreading that light into the world, it stops being a church. It has forgotten its purpose, and so it's totally useless. Now, a number of years ago, when I was in college, I had probably the best summer job ever. I got to work for the National Park Service uh, mapping out different uh, trails that the parks had in this really remote park park up in Alaska. And one of the jobs that we had was to, to map out a trail from a pretty nice uh, remote fly-in cabin to a pretty rustic, uh, to put it mildly, remote cabin about eight miles away. And so we had a little backpacking trip to get there. Within a mile, we ran into our first obstacle, this creek you see in front of you. And it's 
of course, a mountain-fed creek, so it's icy cold. It's pretty fast-moving, and it's close to waist-deep. And so you can imagine when we come across this view and we see a bridge, that's a good thing. I mean, this is, this is a pretty good bridge. This isn't just a little walking path bridge. This is wide enough that a car could fit across it. Looks good. It's got a good foundation, strong structural bridge. There's only one problem. That bridge is on the other side of the river. When it was originally built, it was crossing the river, and it was functioning exactly as, as it was meant to. It was useful for getting people across that river, not getting cold, not getting wet, not getting swept downstream. But over time, the river has moved, and now that bridge is totally helpless on the other side of the river. If the church in Ephesus fails to heed the warning of Jesus, it will find itself exactly like that bridge. And you'll find people like us. We had to actually cross over that river. That's not a picture of me there, by the way. It's a guy who's much shorter than me, so the water looks a little higher on him. But, but it's the point. We got wet first thing right off the bat, and then the rest of our eight-mile hike was with wet feet and, uh, and a little bit of a scare at the beginning. But, but the church in Ephesus, this is what they're in danger of. The church is standing as a lampstand. That's what it's intended to do. It's intended to shine God's light into the world as it spreads the gospel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. But it has neglected the love that sparked that testimony to Jesus. And it will soon find itself maintaining that firm foundation of doctrine and failing to serve its purpose to be the vehicle by which God's kingdom grows. This is a sobering message for a church to hear. You can be a church that loves the Bible with all your heart, and you can totally fail the mission that God has given you. We might be tempted to think that all that's required of us is that, to hold to the truth of the gospel. That's all that's required of us. But what has Jesus called us to do? Who has he called us to be? He said, go and let your light shine before others so that they may see, that more people may see, and that more people may glorify God in heaven. As with every church, we are in danger of neglecting the very reason we are here. That image is a haunting image to me, a bridge standing on the other side of the river, not serving its purpose at all. Structurally sound, a good-looking bridge, not doing anyone any good at all. It's a haunting image of what the church can be. As the demographics and the, and the culture of our community shift, it means that the river is, is moving. And if we are so set in kind of the forms that we've always done, the way we've always done things, then we will quickly find ourselves not doing the purpose that God has given us. I mean, think about it. We're not here to be a monument to the days when Christianity used to be a normal part of American culture. We're, we're not here to be like the White Pine Village, some kind of, kind of living museum where people can come and see how, how things used to be when, when Christianity kind of ruled the day or whatever. And we are called to be a movement where God's light shines into our community and transforms lives. We are to be shining our light before others so that they will see that and, and glorify God as a result. Not glorify us. We're not here about our glory. We're here for the glory of God himself. The mission of the church has been articulated in all sorts of different ways, but really the root of it is the great commission that Jesus gives his followers. The very end of the book of Matthew, Matthew leaves us with the words of Jesus to his disciples. In Matthew 20, this is what he says. This is what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. It doesn't do justice to just grab one phrase out of that, because that whole thing is so vitally important for who we are. But, but the basic command of that is to make disciples. The whole Great Commission comes down to make disciples. That's what the church is to be all about. That's the commission that, that Jesus our Lord has given us. And the elders and I have been working uh, for a long time now. I'm thinking, what does it mean for us to really gain focus as a church? How do we make sure that we don't end up like the YMC, 90 degrees off from where we are? Or even, we don't even want to be 10 degrees off. We want to be at true north, following the path that God has for us. For us, the starting point was to start with the mission. Articulate the mission clearly. And of course, there are all sorts of ways to do that. You could kind of try to make a trendy sort of mission statement that can fit on a t-shirt, be t-shirt worthy. We decided we're not going to do that. We couldn't come up with any anyway. We kind of tried, but it didn't work. But we decided, okay, if we can't do that, if we're not kind of clever enough, and I'm not clever enough to come up with a catchy little uh, slogan for a mission statement, but if I can't do that, let's at least gain focus here. Let's gain clarity by stripping away all the other things. And so this is what we've articulated our mission statement as, to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus. Whatever else we're doing, that is the main thing. We are a church who is here to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus Christ. Now we'll fill that out in the coming weeks, but that's the starting point. As we set our course here this morning, we must be clear, first of all, on our basic purpose, our basic mission. Who are we? We are called to go and make disciples, make more disciples, make stronger disciples. That's the direction that we are setting here as a church, and we will stand or fall on whether or not we're doing that. We will stand or fall on whether or not we are making disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, again, we're going to build on that in the coming weeks. We're going to flesh out the whole idea of what's behind here. What is our unchanging kind of core in Christ, and what's the cost of this, all these different things. But, but for right now, we've got to be clear on the mission. We are here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our desire. So if we're making disciples, that's a clear measure of success, right? If you're making disciples, you are succeeding. If you're not making disciples, well, you might be a structurally sound bridge, but you're not succeeding because you're not doing what you're called to do. You're failing in your mission. The sobering reality for us as a church is that we've not seen a lot of people come to faith in the past several years. One or two here and there, and, that's, and we praise God for the growth that we have seen. But we look out into our community. There are so many people here in our community who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are living without hope, without purpose, without direction. They are living lifeless lives. They are like ghosts wandering in our, around in our community. And we as a church are called to go to those people to show them the message that we have received, to be heralds of Christ, the light shining into our community, into the dark places of our community, to say, this is what God has done in Christ. There are too many people who have not heard the gospel for us to just kind of huddle up and congratulate ourselves and move on. We are called and given a mission by God. We are here to make more disciples, to make stronger disciples of Jesus. That means for us right now, we need to refocus and we need to recommit ourselves to it. We need to say, yes, that is who we will be as a church. We need to understand the mission that God has given us in Christ. And we need to commit ourselves to push hard after it. That's what this, these next weeks are all about. 
Now, I know there are a number of you here that are not with us all year. There are a number of you who are here during this, uh, the, the summer season of cottages up here, or maybe some people who are here just for the week or for a couple weeks, and, and we're really glad you're here. We, we really love living in a place where we get to meet more people. So that means that you're here in the summer and you're overhearing some things that are more or less family matters. But the challenge for you is to bring them home to your church. My prayer for our church, my, my prayer for Trinity, is that God will use this time together to, to spark a movement of our people being recommitted to being disciples of Jesus and to going out and making more disciples of Jesus. My prayer for you who are here seasonally is that God would so stir your hearts that when you return home, you would have renewed vigor for the gospel, that you would have renewed vigor to work with your local church to grow God's kingdom in your community, that you would be committed yourself to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to go home to wherever you live, Chicago, Grand Rapids, wherever that is, and to go and make more disciples there. The question that each of us have to ask is, is that really what I want? Do I really want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ who goes out and multiplies myself by making more disciples? Or do I just kind of want to spin my wheels for a while and, and sit in church? What is it that you want to be a part of? Do you want to be a part of the great work that God has given us? Do you want to be a community of believers that becomes disciples that goes and, and makes more disciples and multiplies disciples so that we see a great movement of God by his grace? Well, if not, then we've already seen the consequence. Jesus has warned us that if, if that's not what we're going to do, then, then we're not serving as a church. The Ephesian church is in danger of losing its lampstand. But there's one last piece to this. And Jesus warned the Ephesians what would happen if they do not repent and turn. But then he gives a beautiful picture of what happens if they do respond in obedience to him. And that's where we're going to end this morning. Look at verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Which those who are victorious in Christ, those in whom God's Spirit works so that they overcome all these kinds of adversities and they respond in obedience to Christ, those who are victorious, those who overcome, who persevere, will eat from the tree of life. The tree of life back from the Garden of Eden, in the paradise of God, again, back from the Garden of Eden. That means that God's creation, when it is restored, those who persevere, those who overcome, who are victorious. There's all sorts of words you could use. Though. Those who are victorious will participate in God's beautiful new creation, the place where God's rule is fully and finally manifest, where his justice and his righteousness bring the peace that only he can bring and where his provision and his presence mean that all is well. That's where this is headed. That's the beautiful reward for those who listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, who hear what God is saying and who respond in obedience to Jesus. May you and I be Christians who hear the call of Jesus and who are, who, in whom the Spirit stirs and so that we are faithfully going forward on the mission God has given us, that we may experience that beautiful new creation. Please pray with me. Our God, we are nothing without you. 
we hear your chastisement and it brings great fear. It can bring great fear. And yet there's so much grace in this because this is an opportunity for us to hear your instructions before it's too late. You are telling us what is required of us. And Father, I pray that you would so work in our hearts that we may be obedient to your call. I pray that you would shape Trinity as a church to be a church on mission, not just here and kind of gathering together, but listening to your word and serving as a lampstand. I pray that you would shine your light through us into the darkness of our community, that we may see incredible change. We pray this because of and in the name of Jesus. Amen.